Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension in Macomb, Illinois. And today we are talking about diseases of plants. And as always, we have our co-hosts here. We have Katie Parker and Quincy. Hello, Katie. Hey, Chris. And of course, we have Ken in Jacksonville. Hey, Ken. Hello, Chris and Katie and Travis. <laughs> and to help us on this this journey through plant diseases. We have plant pathology. Our specialist here, we have Travis Cleveland. Hello, Travis. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being on. We, we do appreciate you. And so would you, would you mind explaining to listeners um, your official title? We had uh, Michelle Wiesbrock on here a few weeks ago. She did tell us a bit about the PSEP team, but could you elaborate a bit about your title and, and kind of your role with uh, pesticide safety in Illinois? Sure. Yeah, I have a similar position uh, as Michelle. I'm an extension specialist in pesticide safety education. And uh, basically, we are tasked with producing the educational materials and programming to help train and certify the uh, thousands of pesticide applicators that operate within Illinois. So that would include anyone from a farmer to a lawn care operator, uh, landscaper, someone who's applying to rights of ways such as roadsides. Uh, basically, anybody who uses pesticides in an outdoor setting, they need to be certified to do that as part of their job, and we provide that training and programming. And you have helped out. You've been a part of the horticulture team for a while. You you come in and you you give... Uh, fantastic classes on tree diseases. You even did a, a wonderful class about identifying, uh, I think it was uh, kind of trees after the fact, after they've been cut down, uh, sort of the, the grains of the wood fibers, uh, which was just fascinating class. But so, Travis, could you tell tell us a little bit why why plant pathology, you know, why, what's the tie-in with trees? Was it something as a child, something in school? What What drove you to this career? Well, it probably started in in high school. I was fortunate to have a uh, a teacher at my high school who liked to teach some of the natural environmental science type courses, and one of them was arboriculture, which I was absolutely fascinated with. You know, the ability to to be able to work outside with your hands and with plant material and trees, and that kind of steered me towards my undergraduate uh, program which was in horticulture urban forestry and as i was going through that program at u of i i was able to kind of dabble in some of the plant pathology courses which i was also fascinated with and uh, continued to take some of those even into my master's degree programming and i had the opportunity to work with nancy Padicky at the u of i plant clinic which uh, really kind of solidified my uh, enjoyment of studying plant diseases, but I do tend to steer towards those that affect kind of woody plant material. So Travis, um, in, in terms of diagnosing plant diseases, this is something that a lot of folks will contact our extension offices with. You know, they, they, they say it could be a disease, it might be an insect, it could be environmental. It can be so hard to diagnose a plant disease you know, and we usually have to tell them you know we can only go so far with it out in the field that it's really ideally you would submit some type of a sample to our, the plant clinic for example on campus could you could you explain a little bit more about kind of the difficulty behind diagnosing disease or if you have any kind of tips or 
good things that folks listening might be able to use when trying to diagnose plant disease? Sure. Um, I'd say probably the number one challenge that, you know, from an extension point of view, when we come, when they come in with a sample or a description is just um, not a lot of information provided. And to be able to accurately diagnose a disease, it probably requires a significant amount of information. That would include a, a description of the host plant, a good description of the symptoms that they're observing, even a time frame on when they've been occurring. And a lot of times we'll have somebody come in and tell us something occurred overnight. Well, there are a couple of things that can do that, but more likely or not, you kind of miss some of those early symptoms leading up to the bigger problem. But yeah, overall, a, just provide a lot of information as much as you can regarding the pest, the host plant, and um, I do recommend that uh, probably a lot of times you will have to submit that to a plant clinic for an accurate diagnosis. Most of us don't have access to some of the technical equipment including microscopes and uh, specific tests that are really needed to diagnose many of the common diseases that we would see occurring in the landscape. So that's where uh, the U of I plant clinic comes in. And I would add there's a lot of diseases that look very similar to each other too. So oh, that absolutely. Can, that, that can make things confusing and without those lab tests there's really no way of telling if it's one thing or another. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So another thing that we kind of run into problems with, aside from maybe not having enough information provided to us with that sample, sometimes people just try to, to send a very small piece of a plant. Well, there's probably a likelihood that it might be affecting another part of the plant. So while we're seeing something occur on the leaf, maybe it's a result of a root pathogen that's restricting the water or another type of canker. So. Well, you might be submitting something that's showing a symptom, it might not be the actual root cause. So that's where it gets to if we're able to see an overall picture of the plant or different parts of the plant that can be helpful as well. Pictures are a whole nother thing to, to get into a discussion on. Ken, how do you feel about pictures? <laughs> <laughs> pictures are great if they are clear and in focus. Exactly. And I, I, I get a lot of them that are quite blurry, out of focus, or they're taking a picture at the wrong angle, and basically we just see a silhouette of a tree. And again, there's no detail or information provided in that. And more recently, with phones, uh, I've had more photos sent to me that have been sort of um, compressed or shrunken down to be the small uh, file size and able to make it a small uh, file to send, but as you do that you compress and lose a lot of that detail and we aren't able to zoom in on specific plant features to really get that information. So yeah, send big pictures. Yeah, and and I would say yeah, kind of a more than one picture too, so kind of kind of get the big picture and then kind of zoom in so you mm -hmm. get both near, close, in between. So don't send one, send, I mean I'd rather have 10 pictures than, than just one. Yes, we love pictures. Never feel like you're sending us too many pictures. That the, that we love them. Yeah, unfortunately, the University of Illinois mail system can have pretty large amounts of uh, data, so don't feel shy about sending us large file sizes. And if it uh, starts to exceed, we can set up another uh, route of getting those photos, but they're critical to the diagnosis. Well, speaking of sending us things in, we do have some questions for you, Travis. And now some of these, we, we also included pictures 
for the questions, and I know folks can't see the pictures who are listening, uh, but you know, as we mentioned, photos are very important for helping us to steer us towards a diagnosis here. Um, so uh, this first one comes from Katie's neck of the woods. So Katie, uh, what what do you have here? Yeah, so we have Georgia from Adams County that has spots on their Virginia creeper, and she's curious as to what could be going on. Well, Virginia creeper is actually a fairly tough and adaptable plant, so that has fairly few common pests that'll attack it. So it kind of makes it a little easier process for us when we can go back and review the plants, <clears throat> uh, review information on the plant. We can sometimes see what they're more commonly affected by. In this case, I'm pretty certain that she's dealing with something referred to as Guignardia leaf spot, which is a, a fairly common fungal leaf disease. And it's going to be more common in years where we have fairly wet conditions during those spring months as those that foliage is starting to leaf out. Uh, this disease will also affect Boston ivy, which is related to Virginia creeper. Both of them are Parthenocissa species. And the pathogen that's affecting it, that Guignardia pathogen, is also closely related to the disease that causes black spot on grapes and even horse chestnut leaf blots, which we see affecting our common horse chestnuts later in the summer. Uh, but what she's probably seeing is uh, kind of numerous small tan to reddish brown lesions on the, the leaf blades. They can be pretty extensive in some uh, years with lots of moisture covering a good portion of the leaf. And if you get a little hand lens, you probably zoom in on that leaf spot and you can see some black uh, fungal fruiting structures inside that lesion, which is pretty good, helpful for diagnosis of that pathogen. Now, in terms of uh, what she should do, most cases we're just going to kind of let that disease run its course. While the, the site of leaf spots kind of might mar the image or affect the aesthetic value of the plant, they're not really likely to, to harm the long-term health of that plant. Um, so in that case there, we probably wouldn't recommend any sort of a fungicide application uh, to control that disease. Additionally, most of the products that would be potentially available for this, they're mainly labeled for use on controlling black rot of grapes. We don't really have any affecting or that are, are labeled for use on Boston Ivy or Virginia Creeper. Uh, so if they were going to try something, they'd have to find something, a product that has a fairly broad language on the label, you know, something that would control leaf spots on ivy or uh, just in general controlling leaf spots and ornamentals. So when it comes to fungicides, um, when people are using those, Travis, aren't most of those more of a kind of a preventative? They're not really a curative. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, That is a very valuable point, uh, point to make whenever you're using any fungicide. Yeah, they are exactly that. They are preventative. They don't really go back and cure existing infections. So that's kind of basically an analogy. We say that they're a lot like sunblock. They're going to prevent that sun from burning your skin. But if you already have that sunburn, it's not going to go back and cure that. So in general, when we're using fungicides, we do apply them either um, in anticipation of a disease outbreak or kind of in a, in when we start to see some weather conditions that would be favorable for development of that disease, that's when we would get out and apply them to put a barrier between that leaf and that particular fungal organism. The sunscreen thing is pretty cool. I have never 
I've never heard it explained like that, and I am totally using that from now on. Well, yeah, that's I, a good analogy. Yeah, me too. Hopefully, I'm sure some pathologists out there will pick it apart, but <laughs> uh, for our purposes, it, it works. Um, all right, our next question um, is from a, a homeowner in DuPage County. Um, they have an older maple tree that has leafed out um, and is now dropping all of its leaves. Um, and this is when they submitted pictures. Um, so Travis has seen these. I don't know if would it be possible to kind of put all these pictures in a box folder, Chris, and then link to that. Uh, yeah, I could do that. Uh, so yeah, I could put these pictures in a box folder. So if you're listening, uh, check down below in the show notes for a link to a box folder for these photographs. And I'll just also add, Travis, there's there's another photo in here of a ash tree, um, and kind of in here together. Uh, I know they're different trees, different questions, but I think you're going to come up with an answer that might be similar to both. So uh, I'm just anxious to hear what you have to say about this, what's happened with these maples and ash trees. Well, the picture appears to be of a silver maple. And this spring, we've actually been seeing getting reports of uh, some pretty common uh, leaf drop and some spotting occurring on a lot of our red and silver maple hybrids and their hybrids. Um, a lot of times people automatically jump to anthracnose, uh, which is very likely, again, given our spring conditions. Um, while we've had some warmer, dry patches in there, we've also had plenty of cool, wet weather, especially as these trees were leafing out. So that's sort of a recipe for many of our fungal diseases to kind of work their way in and be able to infect these newly developing leaves. So what I'm seeing here is, uh, some, again, some, possibly some maple anthracnose, a fungal disease, but we've also seen quite a bit of something referred to as maple leaf blister. And this fungal disease was previously fairly uncommon. We generally would see it only when we had some really unusually wet springs. Uh, however, our weather in our region, especially in the spring, has been trending towards uh, lots of increased rainfall and just general wetter climate. So we're starting to see this particular disease become more prevalent in our area. <clears throat> now maple leaf blister, it's, um, it's actually kind of related, to, it is related to um, peach leaf curl, plum pockets, and one we see on oak, which is called the oak leaf blister. This group of pathogens are related to the Tephrina species. Uh, they cause an abnormal cell division and enlargement. And as a result, you get some areas of the leaves that might appear blistered, crinkled, uh, abnormally shaped. Uh, on maple, it's kind of unique. While we call it maple leaf blister, the initial infections kind of start out green, uh, lightly raised areas, but they qu quickly transition to more of a brownish black coloration. And in my observation, many of the times it sort of collapses and you lose that 3D effect from that blister disease. Now, both anthracnose and leaf blister diseases, if you get some pretty heavy in, uh, infections occurring, like uh, in the photos provided, that's enough to start to cause that leaf to, to prematurely defoliate. Now, they can occur on both. Both diseases can occur on the, the same plant and even the same leaf, so that kind of makes it a little hard to differentiate between the two. As we kind of mentioned as we were talking about the diagnosis process, why is it important to go to a lab? 
well, we'd be able to look at these under a microscope and tell them apart. Um, some quick and dirty sort of field diagnosis tips that I've come across as I've been researching these pathogens. Uh, in terms of separating maple leaf blister from anthracnose, maple leaf blister tends to have more of a somewhat rounded shape compared to the regular angular lesion shape of anthracnose lesions. And they also, some people have mentioned that maple leaf blister typically doesn't cross the leaf veins. So if you kind of flip it over, you can look there. It doesn't really get into those vein tissues at all. So there's some quick ways to tell them apart. Now, fortunately, both diseases are one of categories as mostly being aesthetic in nature. So they, they might look to make the plant look a little unsightly initially, but they really don't harm the long-term health of that tree. Uh, they might cause a little defoliation, but fortunately these trees very quickly push out a, another flush of leaves and those usually come out in warmer, drier weather and they're not going to be affected by that pathogen. Again, these really don't really warrant any form of control. While you might be able to find some fungicides that are labeled for it, they're not going to be effective on these current infections. Again, we're using these mostly in a protective nature. They won't have any curative effect. Um, and they're mostly not going to be warranted also from the fact that it just takes a lot of fungicide to be able to uh, adequately coat an entire maple tree. So we just kind of let this disease run its course. It's not going to harm the tree. Um, the tree will kind of uh, produce new foliage on its own that kind of get through that problem. Oh, I do want to add in, we do have a home yard and garden article that uh, news or on our pest newsletter that covers that maple leaf blister. So that has some more information on the disease as well as some color photos for you. We can put a link also to the Home Yard and Garden newsletter in our show notes. We also have a question from Jean in McDonough County and she is saying that her sycamore has no leaves and wants to know why and what can she do to help the tree? Well, um, Jean is not alone. Uh, pretty much most of the sycamores, in, at least in my area, portion of the state, as well as some others that I'm getting reports from around the state, are uh, experiencing similar types of symptoms. And this is sort of a repeat as to what we had occur last spring. Last year, we noticed that many of the sycamores didn't really fully leaf out until late June and into early July. That was mostly attributed to anthracnose. Uh, similar to what we covered in the previous section there, there's different species that affect different plant material and uh, sycamores tend to be the poster child of uh, anthracnose diseases. Uh, last year we probably might have also had a little bit of winter kill mixed in with some of those buds because we had a pretty harsh uh, late January cold snap that probably might have got into some of those tissues as well. But this year Almost certainly most of what we're seeing in terms of that uh, late developing foliage is related to the anthracnose pathogen. Uh, sycamore anthracnose occurs pretty much every spring, but the severity of which it occurs is often dependent on that weather during spring development. And this year we've kind of had, again, some cool wet conditions at the right times that have uh, pretty much kind of wiped out either the existing buds or some of those early emerging leaves were very quickly killed. Now, a lot of our anthracnose pathogens that we have affecting our landscape plants, they primarily stick to leaf tissues, but with sycamore anthracnose, they have anywhere from three to four distinct phases, depending on how you want to classify them. So they do get a leaf blight phase, which occurs as uh, small or large to regular brown lesions on the, the leaves that can be kind of towards the margins or sometimes more closely on the leaf veins. That'll occur 
later in the growing season. The more important phases that we're looking at right now would be the bud and twig blight phase. That particular phase affects the tree while it's dormant. So that tree is lying dormant in the spring. As temperatures start to warm up, that pathogen is able to uh, continue development and actively infect plant tissues, including some of those buds and even young stems anywhere from one to two years old. As it does that, it actively kills them. And we have uh, upwards of, in some severe years, they've reported upwards of 95% of the tree's buds killed by that pathogen. And I think, again, that's what we had last year and somewhat this year. Uh, the next phase that they would refer to is a shoot blight phase. And that occurs, the tree starts growth, so it starts developing new leaves and shoots. And that fungal pathogen is basically actively infecting those newly developing tissues. And once it gets to a point where it girdles that new shoot, it very rapidly kind of wilts and changes different color to a different color. And it's often confused with symptoms very closely resembling a, a late spring frost. So I think we've had a combination this year of that bud blight as well as that shoot blight phase. What can she do? Well, um, my best recommendation is to have patience. These trees have uh, kind of coexisted with disease for quite a long time, so they're able to kind of tolerate even severe infections. So as I mentioned, about mid-July, uh, late June into early July, we should see these trees start to have kind of a, a full flushed canopy again. Repeated years, so we're in our second year, that can start to, to stress trees a little bit, so doing anything you can to re leave, uh, reduce any stress to that plant would be uh, beneficial. Um, in terms of fungicides for controlling these diseases, uh, they're not often warranted, mainly because it doesn't really have a long-term effect on that plant. But as you often look at the size of a mature sycamore tree, the ability to get that fungicide to adequately cover that plant can be really difficult. You'd uh, be looking at hiring an arborist to come out, making several applications over the course of that spring, and it would very quickly become... Uh, not economically feasible. There are some other options. You can, for a high-value tree, again, hire an arborist to come out and then do a macro injection of a fungicide, which would basically allow that tree to translocate that fungicide up to the tree, and that would prote protect the tree against some uh, future infections. But it's a fairly expensive application, so that's why we say it's reserved to some of those really high-value landscape trees. Our fourth question here, Travis, comes from uh, Dee. She's in Knox County, and she has a, a dogwood, and it has only leafed out in the top branches this year. She she asked if this is a disease. Can she do anything about it? Uh, is it dying? Um, I, I did talk with Dee a little bit, and it's, so this is an older dogwood. She's um, said it was here planted, uh, I think, before they bought the house here, and that was a couple decades ago. Um, so just keep that in mind. It used to be in a planting bed, um, but she can't garden anymore, and the lawn has kind of taken over the whole yard, and so now there's just lawn all over. So uh, we also do have photos of these as well. So I know it's not great information, Travis, but do you have any thoughts uh, or some directions to point for D? Well, as I look at these photos, again, I'm getting kind of just a limited information so it's it's really tough to make an accurate diagnosis or even speculate um, 
I do see maybe a couple of leaves at the top there and maybe some others that tried to leaf out. So uh, perhaps it was injured by that cold snap we had earlier this spring after things have started to leaf out. Um, some other considerations, uh, dogwoods tend to be fairly sensitive to some of the colder winter temperatures. So those winter temperatures can often injure the flower buds or even cause some considerable dieback on, on branch tissues. Uh, what I would recommend she do is start by checking the stems for living tissue. So going to some of those branches that may not be leafing out, kind of lightly scratch some of those younger branches and look at what color the tissues are directly below that, that bark tissue. Uh, if it's green, it's generally a good sign that the branch is uh, still living or at least living for now. And if it's brown, that's usually a bad indication, especially if it's dry. It's probably meaning that that, uh, that particular branch is, uh, is dead. Um, if it does have green tissue, maybe the plant's just a little slower to leaf out this spring. Other things I'd recommend she look out for, uh, some of these flowering dogwoods are susceptible to bores. So she can look at that trunk closely for maybe some emergence holes or some um, maybe some sawdust like frass where they might be exiting from. And a big one that affects flowering dogwoods is dogwood anthracnose. Now, so far we've talked about anthracnose a lot. It's a fairly large group of diseases. Most of them don't really harm the long-term health of the plant. Dogwood anthracnose would be the exception to that rule. So dogwood anthracnose, it'll cause some uh, foliar symptoms similar that we've already described, but this actually starts to progress its way down, and if it gets onto some shoots that uh, eventually spread into the tree's trunk, it can form a canker that'll girdle that entire tree's main trunk or stem, thus killing the tree. So this would be the one situation where we'd be concerned about that disease, that anthracnose disease being uh, fatal. Looking at that, she did mention that these were previously in a flower bed, and I can see now that the grass has started to kind of grow up against the, the trunk of the tree there. Um, that's usually never a good practice for a variety of reasons. One, the, the turf starts to compete with that tree, but it also makes maintenance a little more difficult. So if they're in there with a mower, the mower kind of rubs up against that, maybe injures tissues along that trunk or if they're using a string trimmer, those are pretty deadly when it comes to trees. Even in terms of weed control, if she's got a company in there that is applying certain turf herbicides for broadleaf weeds, some of those can actually leach into that soil and be taken up by that plant. So a lot of them might have some restrictions on applying directly below trees. So again, I don't have anything that I can definitively provide to her. Those are a couple of the suggestions that I'd have her look at in terms of controlling or figuring out what's going on with that dogwood. And that just kind of goes back to the point towards the beginning of the, the show. You know, it, it, at Extension, you know, we can try to point people on, on a lot of good directions, but really without any, like a lab sample or even just live tissue that's infected that we can look at under a microscope, it's just really, really hard to say one thing or another 100%. Yeah, and um, in many cases, we might recommend that whole wait-and-see approach, especially if we've had some challenging weather conditions in that spring or winter. 
a lot of times, you know, it just kind of wait to see if the tree starts to grow out of it is your best option rather than immediately jumping into, oh, I should spray it with this because that can create further problems down the road. I think that is like, that's in all of our extension people's back pocket. It is the it depends line. Mm -hmm. It is the wait and see line. And then it is the there's always exceptions line. I think we've used all of those for these questions too. So yeah. <laughs> and maybe just for this dogwood here, because the exception was the dogwood anthracnose, the exception to that. Yeah, uh, that's that true. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. D, you know, just again, it, wait and see. Um, hopefully, it might have just been that late freeze would have gotten the leaves, and you might have something later on this year. I certainly hope so, especially for a, a dog tree that a dogwood tree that's been along that long. Yeah. All right. Um, our last question. Um, so. I think probably all of us have been getting lots of questions about spruce trees, um, losing their needles, starting kind of starting from the bottom and then working their way up. Um, is there something people can spray on their trees? Um, should they maybe think about replacing blue spruce? Um, what would some alternatives uh, to Colorado blue spruce be? Yeah, this is the, um, the basically the plant pathology topic of the decade in terms of what comes into the plant clinic, it seems like every year it's uh, it starts out with uh, Colorado, blue Colorado spruce trees. Um, it is a, definitely a reoccurring problem. Well, to start off, I do want to point out that we could probably provide a link to the U of I plant clinic fact sheet on spruce problems. Uh, things were getting bad enough to where we were able to put together an entire fact sheet just on these the, the problems that occurred to these plants. Uh, some of it stems from that, you know, Illinois really isn't ideally suited to growing spruce trees. Uh, most of those are native to maybe cooler regions of the northern hemisphere, areas that have, uh, you know, soils with excellent drainage, uh, more sandy composition to them. And if we put them in here, transplant them into Illinois soils that tend to be fairly warm summers and heavy clay soils, it just kind of stresses them and predisposes them to a variety of problems. Now, there's not one specific pathogen that's necessarily causing all the injury that you might be reporting or seeing, but we do have a list of sort of the, the repeat offenders here. Um, most, number one of on the list would be Rhizosphera needle cast, and it's especially devastating again to that blue Colorado spruce. Now, when you have that disease, it's going to probably start at the bottom of the tree, as this person described. Um, it's going to affect the previous season's needles. So, right now, you'd see a branch that probably has maybe just a tuft of growth towards the end, needles that emerged this year. Those are actually actively being infected at this time, and then come this time next spring is when we start to see them really start to fall off the tree. As we get into this fall, they might even pick up sort of a purplish coloration, but they'll kind of hang on that tree for a while until, until the spring. So if you see a branch that's fairly bare on the old growth, you're almost seeing the new growth, you're probably dealing with a rhizosphera needle cast. Uh, that one we do have some fungicide options, which I'll talk about later. Uh, before I get into that, I want to look at uh, talk about one disease that is very similar to rhizosphere needle cast, and that's stigmina needle cast. Problem with this one is we actually don't know if it's truly a pathogen or not. We suspect it is. It's associated with a dying plant tissue, but they haven't gone through all the 
the, the research they actually definitively state it is a, a, a pathogen. <clears throat> now in terms of symptoms, very similar to what you'd see with rhizosphere needle cast, affecting kind of those older needles. So you'd again see that kind of uh, branch with just the growth towards the outer portion, the newest growth. The only way to really tell those two apart is if you got a microscope or even a hand lens, you can look at some of those affected needles, um, particularly in some of those pores on the bottom of those needles. If you, if you look at them closely with a hand lens, rhizosphera replaces some of the white resin spots in there with a more spherical black spot, whereas stigmina has the, replaced those, but it has more of kind of... Um, it, it, uh, the spots almost have little appendages coming off of them, so it almost looks like a little mite is sitting in there. That's the easiest way to tell those apart. Uh, the third culprit is Cytospora canker. Uh, again, this will start fairly low on the tree. Some of these pathogens start low on the tree because that's generally where the higher level of moisture is, and then as they start to build up spores and inoculum, they can work their way up through the tree over a course of several years. This one's a little different in that it mainly kind of kills off individual branches. So again, starts at the bottom, but can be kind of scattered throughout the, the, the canopy of that spruce tree. So as it kills individual branches, you can kind of start to look inside, seeing what the potential causes for that are. And you'll probably see a branch that has a portion of that branch exuding quite a bit of sap. And if you were to take a, a sharp knife and kind of cut into that, you probably see that more distinctive canker-type symptom. Hey folks, Chris breaking in here. I just want to let you know I had some recording difficulty at this point in the podcast. Uh, right here, Travis starts talking about SNEED, which stands for Sudden Needle Drop or Spruce Needle Drop. And right now he is going into what you would see on a tree or a spruce that's affected with SNEED. This one, I actually don't see any of those structures on the actual needles. This one's actually sort of injuring the actual small branches. So to confirm this disease, you can kind of look directly at the branch for some black structures developing on that stem. But the problem is it looks very similar to a lot of other fungal saprophytes, which aren't causing problems on that plant. So that's one where we really need you to send that to the U of I plant clinic uh, for diagnosis, and they prefer to get those samples fairly early in the season while that sneed fungus is sporulating. Uh, I think there was a question on can I spray? Well, um, for some of these diseases, well, mainly rhizosphere, there are some management options using fungicides, and they can be effective, but they do take a little bit of work. So for rhizosphere, you actually have to do, do some sprays for two consecutive springs, and that's because of the kind of a long infection window needed to control this disease. So you start your first spray when uh, the needles are about half their normal length, and then a second spray should be applied anywhere from three to four weeks after that first spray. And of course, you're going to have to look at your, your fungicide's label to get the actual uh, spray duration between those two. So again, sprays for two consecutive springs, and you can generally get some fairly good control uh, for trees that have some minor injury. If you've got one that is really heavily damaged from successive years, 
it's not going to be too easy to control to find your sites. It might take either a longer control option or you'd probably jump to a better option, which would be to uh, remove and replace with another, another species. Uh, in terms of spruce, again, we don't have a lot of great options. I would definitely plant anything but a blue Colorado spruce, so maybe go towards those Norways. They don't tend to be affected by rhizosphere as much and some of those other pathogens. If possible, maybe um, try different evergreen species, but none of them are without their own issues. So we use white pines heavily in Illinois. And more recently, we've been seeing a lot of issues with white pine decline on those. So kind of suddenly this, uh, your, your white pine starts to turn yellow over the course of the spring and it's, it very quickly dies. And then Austrian pines are also heavily used in the state, but they have even more issues in terms of fungal diseases than what we are seeing on some of these blue Colorado spruces too. So not a lot of great options to replace them in turn of evergreens, but if you do try to use that route, just do some extensive research. Make sure you're not selecting something that's going to be a really long-term maintenance problem in terms of disease management. We can have you come back on and we can discuss Koch's postulates. Really? And how you determine <laughs> if it's actually a disease or not. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, on that note, it's sort of, we have a challenge in our ornamental disease controls that a lot of what we do have available to us have been derived or based off of management in either um, fruit production or some type of other agronomic setting. So before we get some of these recommendations, you know, you've got to do some extensive research, and that usually starts in food production or agronomy. We will link in the uh, show notes below the uh, spruce problems sheet that the plant clinic put together, the University of Illinois Extension plant clinic put together. And so well, other than that, Travis, I mean, that was a whole lot of information, but, I mean, you, you do diseases, but you just finished up a webinar with, um, I think it was McLean County in that unit there regarding a crash course in tree ID. Uh, so, you know, is that something folks would be able to, to listen to later on? I, I think they recorded it. Is that correct? They did record it. I'm not sure when they're going to have that recording available, but I would, yeah, strongly encourage anybody who's interested to take a look at that presentation. I try to do something a little different for it. Um, basically, a lot of times we focus our identification on leaves. So I was strongly encouraging participants to look beyond the leaves at some of the other plant features that are often used for identifying plant material. So we talked about different types of buds, uh, some stem features, and other characteristics to really help them be able to identify trees, particularly if they were using some dichotomous keys. So it's worthwhile looking into, and hopefully they have that available soon. Step one in disease diagnosis is correctly identifying the species being infected. Very true. All right. Well, thank you very much, Travis, for being on the show today. We really appreciate your time. I know you're, you're a, a new dad again, so congratulations on that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And um, also, uh, thank you to Katie for being on the show, as always. And she is a new homeowner, so congratulations to Katie. Oh, thank you. 
So all kinds of projects to get done. Oh yeah, yes, and and keep cool uh, <laughs> while you can. Um, and and again, Ken, thank you very much for being on the show. You're welcome. I have nothing new to share. So, <laughs> Ken, me and Ken, we're just just hanging in there. I think so. Yeah. Um, so well. Anyway, thanks again, once again, to, to everyone on the show, and thank you to all of those listening, and keep on growing.